have you ever seen um, one of those reality programs on telly about people who can't bear to chuck anything out? I saw one once in which there was this three-bedroom home. <laughs> you want to make a confession? The three-bedroom home which produced truckloads upon truckloads of junk. They had to do something about it because the local health authority had declared this house to be unfit for human habitation, as it was. A lot of the stuff they took away was still in its original packaging. It had never been opened. The woman who had bought it, she just compulsively bought it, compulsively bought it and she'd never opened it. Now, I find these shows equal parts grotesquely compelling and really sad. As the hoarders are profoundly broken people living out of their pain. Well, if you've been around church for a while, you will know that the people of God accumulate stuff like a hoarder's storage cupboard. Though here at Opawa Baptist, we are trying to turn that tide. So if you go looking for your sainted Auntie Margot's tapestry of Jesus having a water fight with the disciples, we may not be able to locate it. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. May it rest in peace. Now when I started my first paid church gig, I was the youth, children and families worker at Karori Baptist Church in Wellington. On day one, I was taken to my office. I hadn't realised this room was in the church. It was this narrow nook up some stairs in the roof. It was not in the initial design, but after they built the building, they realised there was a bit of space up there. So they put this office in. And in my office, I found a large brown hollow paper mache thing, which took up quite a bit of space. Now, being young and thoughtful, this was 25 years ago and I was a, I was a nice person back then, I asked what this creation was, thinking I should check that it didn't have holy relic status before I biffed it. Well, it turned out it was the empty tomb from Easter three years before. Okay, so it wasn't Jesus' sandals or the bread wrapper from the Last Supper, but, you know, it might be useful again. So we're not going to chuck it out. Now, if it had been a cross, I would have recognised it straight away, but you don't see people wandering around with jewellery around their necks in the shape of a hole in the ground. So resurrection is kind of the poor cousin of the cross because it's hard to easily represent it. But listen here to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news I proclaim to you, which you in turn received and which also you stand through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you, 
is of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is, I think, the one place in the New Testament where Paul very clearly spells out what the gospel is that he preached. Our salvation, our hope, our everything is built on the victory Jesus won for us on the cross, yep, but also on his resurrection. It's a plane with two wings. One-wing planes aren't going anywhere fast, but when I looked up one-wing planes in Google, I found that. So, I don't know. Very doubtful about that picture. So today I'm going to dig into John chapter 20, which tells some of the story. I'm also going to draw on 1 Corinthians 15 to explain it, which talks a lot about resurrection, because the best interpreter of Scripture is other Scripture. And if you've got a story in Scripture, you should look to the teaching parts of Scripture to understand it, to help you understand it. So John 20 verse 1 starts like this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from it. So she ran, went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lined with linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their home. Two brief uh, points about this bit of the story. First, if you were making this up in first century Judea and Palestine, you would not have a woman as a key witness because in those days the evidential value of female testimony was that it was zero so to have Mary at the story of these events for me makes it ring true because you wouldn't make it up that way second thing is that the empty tomb is not by itself enough Mary assumes that somebody else has taken the body. She does not yet think that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and nor do Peter and John at this stage. The story continues. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she bent over to look into it, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. But when she'd said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. There's a lot in this. But the first thing I want you to note is that Jesus, is that Mary has not gone to the tomb looking for the resurrected Jesus. She's gone to honour him in his death, to dress his body appropriately. It's an act of great love and great care that she wanted to give to her dead master. She knew that he was dead because along with John and a couple of others, she had watched him die three days prior. Her realism, her knowledge that he was dead, is reinforced by the fact that when she sees him, she doesn't recognise him. She mistakes him for the gardener. Now, if you are pining for someone who you have just lost, you'll see their face across the crowd at the train station or in a cloud in the sky will remind you of that person. Or if you're my grandfather, you'll think you're seeing your late wife at the foot of the bed talking to you. You're looking for that image, that person wherever you go. But not Mary. She knew that he'd died, and like every good Jew of her time, she knew that resurrection, if it happened at all, and the Sadducees taught that there was not going to be a resurrection. But if it happened, it was going to happen on the day of the Lord. On, the day, on that day, equivalent to our judgment day, everyone who died would be raised to life for judgment. Nobody, including Mary, expected that before that day, anybody was going to be raised to life. Now, Jesus' words to Mary, don't, don't hold on to me, or some translations say don't cling, sound harsh. But I don't think it's meant that way. Jesus is going to his Father, so he's not going to be with them bodily as he has been before, but he will be with them in a different way by his Spirit. From Pentecost onwards, there is going to be this new way of relating to God through the indwelling Spirit of Christ within them. Now, Jesus had talked about this on the previous Thursday night, that he would send his comforter to be with them and in them. He hints at this new way of being and saying that he is going, what is it, to my father, or is it? 
I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's a big shift in that little pronoun. A fundamental change is looming. Well, John continues. When it was evening on that day, first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. When he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. When I first read, Peace be with you, it sounds to me like, Boo. Because I imagine they were thinking, feeling anything but peace. You're in this locked room, and your dead master suddenly shows up. Now, I know for me, I would be trying to pick, up, pick my jaw up off the floor and hope that in my utter amazement, I would not have an unfortunate and embarrassing accident at that point. Quite something. Duh. Hello? But when they see his hands and his side, the, the wounds from crucifixion, they know this is Jesus who died three days before. It's not his ghost or anything like that. It's the flesh and blood, Mr. Jesus H. Christ, standing next to them. Oh my goodness. And again, if I was John making up this story, I would not have cast myself as a stunned mullet. I would have written something like, and then Rod the wise disciple, seeing Jesus appear before them, said, welcome master, we've been expecting you. They don't write that. Again, the ring of truth shines that John does not cast himself or his friends in a strong light. Now, Jesus breathing the Spirit on them is puzzling because it's pre-Pentecost, which is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that after his ascension to the Father, they would all be indwelt by the Spirit. So it's not that, but it's clearly not nothing either. Perhaps it was the start of the process that was completed at Pentecost. John, who was at Pentecost himself, so he knows that there's these two events here, just mysteriously leaves us hanging. Don't know. Another interesting bit here is that Jesus gives his disciples the ability to forgive others. Forgiveness is administered through God's people, us, to each other. As being the body of Christ, we're the hands, feet, and mouth of Jesus in this world. In the Anglican liturgy, there's a point at which the priest says, you are forgiven. And it's a powerful thing, and it's a good thing. And if you think about it, most of the answered prayers that we have experienced are delivered through the agency of other people. 
It's not usually God to us, it's God through someone else to us. And then John continues, but Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, well, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Again, not a great look for an early church leader like Thomas. And for 2,000 years now, we have not called him Thomas the twin. We've called him Doubting Thomas. Church is like a small town. You're not remembered for the smartest thing you did. You're remembered for the dumbest. This appearance and, and the other post-resurrection appearances that are recorded in uh, Luke raise the question of what Jesus has become. Yes, it's the Jesus they knew because he's got scars on his hands and his feet from the crucifixion. And in Luke 24... 43, he has a snack on some fish. So he's at great pains to show, hey, this is me. I'm real, I'm physical, I'm embodied. I'm not some sort of woo spirit. But he can appear within a locked room. And the pre-crucifixion, Jesus didn't do that. So sure, it's him, but he's different. Now you might consider that's a somewhat academic question. But consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the stuff about resurrection. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. Now, first fruits are the fruit picked at the beginning of the harvest. That's the fruit that has ripened first. Now, if an ancient Israel had been um, some sort of industrial society, like hours, you might have said, Paul might have said that Jesus was the prototype, the first model to be followed by the mass-produced rest of us. Post-resurrection Jesus, therefore, is in a state that one day those of us who follow him will also be in, when we in our turn are resurrected. Now, clearly, our destiny is not to be some sort of angelic being or pure spirit. He's, Jesus is clearly, he's a physically embodied being, albeit with a perfected physicality. Now, it's interesting to me, he's still got the scars on his hands and the wound in his side. 
And this suggests to me that we take our experiences in this life for good or for ill with us. Our pains, our gains, our growth are not washed away. Rather, they're redeemed. The healing of being bullied or assaulted or having chronically poor self-esteem will be completed at resurrection. Praise God for that. 1 Corinthians 15, a bit later, says this, What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Now, we are made in the image of God at the moment, albeit it's, it's a murky image. It's like one of those old sepia photos like this, grainy and indistinct. But then we will fully bear the image of our Creator as sin and its effects have been fully cleansed from us and who we will be. Now think about the Big Mac hamburger. Craig and I went for lunch after church a few weeks ago at the Sydney Maccas and we each had a Big Mac but didn't look anything as good as this. Ours were messy. This is neat. This is regular. This is trimmed. It's perfected. It's made perfect. And like Jesus, we will be made immortal. Genesis 3.27 quotes God saying, Adam and Eve could not stay in the Garden of Eden after they had sinned, else they would eat from the tree of life and live forever. But when we die, what has been sown as perishable, as mortal, will be raised imperishable, immortal. And I think it's interesting that Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. In a way, Jesus has taken up the rake and the hoe that Adam and Eve dropped, abandoned after they were expelled from Eden to bring beauty and order out of the chaos and the ugliness of the sin-scarred world that we live in. So to sum up, there are continuities and discontinuities between our current selves and our resurrected selves. It will be us but a glorified us. If you and I meet in the new heaven and the new earth, we will meet the people that God created us to be. You won't have to cross the road to avoid me. And at that point, our sin will be but a memory. Now these glimpses of what resurrection life will be in God's kingdom are fleeting, but they give me hope that sustains me and keeps me moving forward. In the gloomy bits of life, you need hope. I've just gone through a period of struggle with bleak my little dog's death. I was quite down. And hope came from caring friends that I leant into and leant on. Our hope is also built on the forgiveness that Jesus won for us on the cross. And the resurrection points us towards a perfected future that we are being saved to. Paul sums it up quite well, as he does, the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor, what you do is not in vain, is not pointless, is not useless. 
and thank God for that. Could the musicians please come up? We're going to finish one final song. The word mystery has come up a bit today. But there's also what we do know. That salvation is past, present and future. And that the Father, Son and Spirit are acting on it together. So I invite you to stand. We're going to sing classic old song, There is a Redeemer.